Welcome back to the BCP cast. In this episode, we're going to look at terminology. What's in a name? There's been a shift in recent years away from business continuity to the more holistic resilience. Is it just renaming and rebranding the same job or something more significant? And let's not forget all the other designations. Emergency management, emergency planning, disaster recovery, crisis management, risk and resilience. Does it even matter what we call it? How much does changing the lens through which we view these jobs actually improve the outcome? Can we reframe the entire role to one of planning and building in resilience to reduce the chance of incidents and crises? We'll start today hearing from a couple of practitioners who've held several different titles, James Krask and Simon Freeston. In James' case, that's because he's had different roles and different responsibilities. In Simon's, the role has stayed the same, but the name has changed. And in the early days, I was, you know, the person with the high-vis jacket on the scene of the uh, the event, helping the emergency services respond. And then that kind of took me into more policy roles in, in government to work out how to build resilience to um, to safeguard the UK's interests against uh, against some of these threats. And then eventually taking that learning and and and, and applying it into the into the private sector. I've done the same job now for six years. I've been called three different things. I've been a contingencies, a civil contingencies officer, an emergency management officer, and now I'm a BC and emergency planning officer. I've done the same job in all of the roles, but I think the distinction between two is um, EPs, emergency planning is externally facing. It's You're only really going to do it if you've got properties or stuff like that. Um, and BC is always internally focused and it's looking more at disruption to the business. I think it all should be just crisis management, if I'm honest. I don't like emergency planning and business continuity. It's, ju- it's just you're dealing with crisis. Um, dealing with an emergency is exactly the same as dealing with the business continuity. It's just you have slightly different people around the table. If those of us in the industry are debating titles and distinctions... It's no surprise that people outside the profession don't always get exactly what it is that we do. Working at a council, Simon had this worse than most. No one knows what business continuity is. No one knows what emergency planning is. The amount of times I get on LinkedIn planning jobs sent to me by recruiters going thought you might want to be interested in this town planning job no i'm an emergency planner it's not i do quick planning applications for people that's not there's no such thing as i've had people ring me when i worked for the council going i've got a planning application i need to get in very quickly i'm like i'm not that kind of planner you need to speak to our planning team and that's why we rebranded emergency management because gives it a bit more emphasis of what we do. But actually, it's not just emergencies. It's, it is crisis management at the end of the day. That's BC, that's everything. Let's get to the meat of this debate. What is organisational resilience? How is this different to business continuity? Here's Dean Beaumont's take. 
there's there's a distinction between BC just rebranding itself as resilience. I think that that evolution really does need to include and get people on board um, from all those other disciplines to work together and, and you know become that resilience. What thread? I suppose that's the thing of a word. So from my perspective, we've seen you know the BCI you know grow and develop over the last twenty years. We've seen the introduction of various standards, British standards, international standards. Now we've seen the emergence of resilience as a as a kind of as a buzzword. Maybe maybe it's not a discipline yet, but it's certainly a you know a philosophy. And I think that we've also seen more now we talked about the types of people that might want to get involved and we've seen i think a broader church of people wanting to get involved in in that particular uh, aspect of the work so you know we've got the you know, women in resilience you know my, my team is mostly comprised of of, of women which is you know, not necessarily a reflection of other teams around around doing this we've seen women in resilience we've got now uh, young people coming into the industry who wanted to do it when they were at school and have gone on gone to university and studied it and now are coming into our into our discipline and I think that's that's wonderful I've um, encouraged interns in my my department now for well well since I've been here at Experian three years and before that for three years as well so I think that if business continuity was the last 20 years resilience is going to be the next 20 maybe the next 30 talking to my intern the other the other day over a coffee, I, I explained to him that I thought he was going to be kept busy for definitely the next next 20 years just figuring out this stuff because it's so massive. But perhaps this isn't anything new. Like Dean, Richard McGlave is in favour of the change to resilience and has some examples of this in practice. So business continuity would form part of business resilience. And I think... Uh, even the terminologies are changing. This is nothing new to anyone that's a practitioner, uh, but they will realise that it's more often now that you would be appointed as the business risk and resilience manager rather than the business continuity manager. So this overarching uh, coverage of multiple disciplines within business continuity has led to being taken more seriously and mainly because it derives more benefit to the organisation now, there's more tangible benefit coming back through business resilience, cyber resilience, regulation from uh, government, uh, you know, basically uh, customer demands. Uh, these types of things are now more uh, are more tangible, and therefore businesses uh, understand business continuity as being an essential part of uh, an organisation these days. Uh, the first sight I've seen of this just it's just it's just occurred to me. I worked with an organisation or worked with one of our clients and uh, worked with them. And this was this would have been, this would be 10 years ago. A large, well-known European utility company. And it was the first organisation that I'd ever entered into 10 years ago that basically where business continuity was controlled was in something called the Business Risk and Resilience Office. And they had a... A head of that, that which was head of business risk and resilience, and that was ten years ago. So these, you know, so emerged there. It was my first exposure to it as a, a broader concept, where security, IT, uh, risk, business continuity was all under the one umbrella. And if you think about it 
logically it, it sits there. So it's the uh, first sight of it 10 years ago. I predict in 10 years from now, it will be common practice. And even at some point, maybe not, but maybe in the future, uh, executive teams will have a chief resilience officer uh, because it may well be that important. There's another challenge that the move to resilience creates. It's a much wider, much broader scope. So where does it end? With business continuity, the scope is clear. It's about responding to disruption and maintaining operations. Being organisationally resilient, however, takes in a lot more. It almost becomes business planning. If you were the resilience officer at Blockbuster Video, for instance... Would it be your responsibility to track the technological rise of streaming video and the competitive threat of Netflix? You know what? I think there are two aspects to it. I think there's definitely, I think the organizational resilience piece, I think, is a more strategic piece because it's about planning uh, your business such that, you know, you are resilient by design. That's maybe a, a way to think about it. Whereas your operational resilience is more about how you work together in the more immediate um, situation. We've given ourselves perhaps a flag to now follow, right? And a cause that we can all get behind. So that that kind of helps, I think. Um, On that strategic piece, though, I think that the onus of responsibility falls on the business leaders to A, understand what it means to them and their organization and be then instruct those 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 entities those groups those those resilience people okay this is what i want it this is what i want to do this is what i want my business to be able to achieve how how resilient do we need to be to be able to do that so that, that's where the industry is heading and i think that is where the industry needs to head so it's looking at business continuity emergency management crisis management cybersecurity dr all under one roof, put them all in change management as well. Change management is the key. How is your business going to change over five, the next five, 10 years? How is the economic environment going to change? How are you going to make sure your business is agile enough to um, keep with the times, keep with technological changes? Even if you don't buy into all that resilience has to offer, there are certainly a couple of benefits everyone agreed on. Firstly, Repositioning as resilience can help getting internal stakeholders to take planning more seriously. Business continuity can perhaps be disregarded, but people are more keen to be involved in resilience initiatives. Secondly, as Simon describes here, it can help your career. That's the way to go. Like selling that to your senior leadership teams kind of solves the problem of progression as well. Because if you've got a bigger area, if you're combining services into a bigger area, there's more progression opportunities. But what does this actually look like in practice? Dean had a really good example of his organisation not just thinking about continuity after the fact, but developing and growing with resilience baked in. So a great example of that is a recent trip I did out to India where the uh, country MD was talking to me about wanting to expand and grow the business. How was he going to do that on a resilient footing? And he's talking about the next three to five years. So to think about that, one of the things is 
their location at the moment, they're in a single site. So they, they, they know that, that that's particularly vulnerable you know, if there were to be some kind of physical issue that stopped them getting to the office or you know, some, other, some other mishap. So as part of that similar, that, so part of that trip out to India, I also conducted some site visits to some suppliers where they were actually thinking about resilience from, from the site build. So they were building uh, resilient telecommunications, power supplies, their own power stations in some instances, um, even um, accommodation for the workers to be on site. So there was a whole bunch of stuff that had gone into, if we had to be resilient, how would that look? They've done that at the drawing board level and they've built it because they've had obviously the luxury that they're building some of this stuff from scratch. So to talk about that back to the country MD and play that back to him, that made him think, okay, so I'm not just talking about renting more office space in this building, am I? I'm talking about my actual strategic vision for the for the business will be, okay, I would think about perhaps having a second site in another city that I could then have that kind of dual site, I have that resilient setup. So if I lose one, doesn't matter, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be able to just continue as I was from my other site. And just starting to think strategically along those lines and be able to add value to those conversations is I think where we have that duty of responsibility. James Krask has been involved in the international standards on business continuity and later developing the standard on resilience. So he has a pretty unique view on the shift taking place and the reasons behind it. In terms of the, the need, I mean, the, the business continuity standard at ISO is one of their more popular or sort of highest selling standards. Whether or not people go for certification is, 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 um, is, is a separate issue, but it, it's very popular. Um, so there's a lot of interest in the market for it, and there's been a lot of interest in the revision that's just been republished. And it tends to do very well in the US, in Southeast Asia and, and um, Europe. In the UK, it's a bit more muted in that I think we've got quite a mature business continuity market already, given that we were the first country that came forward with a national standard on the subject. So um, so it's in those other markets that you tend to get a little bit more interest. Japan's another really key market the impetus for it was the realization that business continuity on its own and other risk management disciplines on their own actually don't make an organization resilient in its entirety there's a whole bunch of things that contribute to or take away from an organization's resilience um, some of them are really easy to to spot and measure and implement. There are processes for them like safety and security and IT, disaster recovery, business continuity and so on. But a whole bunch of them are less visible and you either have them or you don't. So for example, it's it's the way that um, staff behaviours support the values of the business and whether the values of the business are the right values for to support the purpose of the business and the vision and so on. It's the amount of social capital the organisation maintains with its uh, customers and regulators and even its staff, staff um, as a measure of how likely um, the organisation might be forgiven for causing a disruption or an event happening. So those things, are they're, they're much more strategic, much more nuanced, less visible characteristics of resilience. So ISO wanted to explore 
how how we can provide some guidance to organisations in identifying those things as a precursor to potentially measuring, monitoring and and, uh, and understanding where your resilience is, in addition to all those process-based resilience activities that are more are more visible like I said earlier on so that's where 22316 came from but it was a really difficult project to deliver because at the time and even now really nobody agreed with what resilience was and a lot of people saw it as a threat um, risk managers and BC managers all saw it as a bit of a threat to their own position because well hang on a minute I thought I was doing resilience for the organization now you're telling me that it's much bigger than bigger than me uh I think I think we've got over that hump now, and I think the thing that has really helped crystallise the whole concept has been um, the push that we've had from certain regulators, particularly in the banking sector, on operational resilience over the last year or so. And although it doesn't go quite to the uh, to the end of, or, you know, it doesn't provide quite the same breadth of what two two three one six was talking about, it's a big step forward in what how we should be talking about resilience and I like to kind of talk about it as a, a a much more integrated and holistic way of delivering risk business continuity a whole bunch of other things that that that, that support an organization's resilience in the first episode we talked about business continuity coming out of the shallows and into the spotlight that seems to tie in with this move to resilience yeah and more people are talking about it and and it's not it's not you and I talking about it now, it's other people that previously haven't been. Um, if I look back at what I was doing at PwC, back in, what, 2010 onwards, we were developing some of this thinking around what we, we called enterprise resilience at the, at the time, which touched on all the kind of topics that um, uh, the Bank of England have, have been talking about and also the ISO. And we ran into a bit of a brick wall in, in trying to, you know, speaking candidly, sell it to clients as a concept purely because we were a bit too ahead of where the market was. So realisation that actually you needed to wait for the market to catch up almost. Um, and that's happened, I think, in the last year. There's still a long way to go, I believe. I, think, I don't think we're quite at the leading edge of where we could be, but we're, we're well down the road on where we were last, you know, if you look back 12 months, two years. And now for something completely different. It's time for another real-life recovery story. This one comes from Julie Goddard and her time at a brewer. And it might just include the single best quote we've ever had. I used to be network support. I used to work with our, uh, our third-level technical team on satellite support. And we did actually once lose satellite in space. And back in the day, um, we had four countries connected by satellite link. And they all came in diverse routing into the main data centre. So in theory, the only way you could lose all the countries was if the data centre failed, um, such as when we had the power down. But under normal circumstances, you wouldn't ever lose all those countries because of the diverse routing. And lo and behold, one day we lost all four countries, even though UK and the UK data centre was humming along nicely. And we could not work out what was going on. And we'd got the network diagrams out. You were turning them upside down, thinking, what, what on earth has happened here? And after a while, probably even a, as much as a day, it actually um, occurred to us that the single point of failure was the satellite in space. And what had happened was some space junk had hit the satellite and pushed it out of orbit so that it lost its coordinates 
um, with all the Earth stations that were dotted around the globe that allowed the countries to connect up to the satellite. So it's lost all of the coordinates. And I remember having this really memorable conversation with um, one of the third line techie guys. And I said, when he told me what had happened, I said, well, how, how do we remedy this then? I mean, I sound, I sound a really stupid question, but can you reboot the satellite? And I felt silly asking it. And he said, well, we've tried that because <laughs> I think they were hoping if they reset it, it would pick up the new coordinates automatically. Um, and it didn't. And um, so I said, so now what do we do? And he said, they literally had to go round and reprogram every Earth station to pick up the new position of the satellite link in, uh, sorry, the satellite in space, which was, um, yeah, mind-blowing. It took about four days to recover that situation. And it was a really, what was interesting about that is everybody was looking for the really obvious problem. When it first happened, everybody was looking for an earthbound problem, like the network's got wrong, gone wrong, something's gone wrong with the config, something's gone wrong in the, you know, in the infrastructure. But it, it came down to a process of elimination and the only thing that was left was the satellite in space and that's what it was. So that was one of the most bizarre incidents I've ever been involved in. Um, and we got all the sites back up eventually, but it just was a case of literally an engineer going around and reprogramming each earth station. I was slack-jawed when Julie told me this story. Who has satellite gets hit by space junk on their risk register? Considering how unexpected the incident is, how difficult it was to diagnose and then remediate, I was quite impressed by the actual recovery. I asked Julie if she considered it to be a success. Uh, well, um, was it a success? I think it was a big learning. <laughs> um, I think it probably it could have been worse. Back in those days, they were able to continue some kind of production because in production environments, certainly before there were more IT-reliant than they are now, you could still use people's manual expertise and skill to keep things running. But it didn't actually stop them getting beer out the door, which is a real relief because beer is important. <laughs> Yes, it is. This episode's closing advice comes from Eric McNulty. In a small organisation, you don't have to worry about these risk, BC, DR, resilience distinctions. It all tends to fall on the shoulders of the most senior people in the company. And that can be a problem, particularly if you've got to deal with the crisis as well as running the day-to-day -day operations. Eric has some simple, usable advice. Yeah, I think the other the other thing which which um, is a real challenge for people at SMEs is that everyone tends to wear multiple hats. Um, you know, it is because you've got a lot to get done. You don't have the the luxury of having specialists for everything, so you're you're doing multiple jobs. That's a lot of fun. I like working in that environment uh, myself. If a crisis hits, you've got if you're the MD, uh, you need to be able to or the owner. You need to be able to separate the crisis from the day-to-day -day business. And you've got to decide which one of those you're going to run. Because if you try and run both, you're likely to do poorly at both, or at least suboptimally at both. So if you can say, you know what, yeah, right, I'm going to I'm gonna handle the crisis and then turn to your CFO, your COO, whoever, whoever it happens to be who's your a trusted senior management peer and say, you take care of the business. Let's talk every morning and every evening to make sure we're on the same page, but you focus there and I'm going to focus here. <clears throat> or the other way around. Say, so I'm going to run the business, take care of the customers, talk to that side of thing, and then have the confidence and trust in someone to hand off and say, 
you run the crisis piece. Here's our plan. We know what's going on. And let's set a scheduled communication, like usually a morning, evening. And if anything earth shattering happens in the middle, obviously break that cycle and talk right away. But create a rhythm, get into a rhythm and don't try and do everything yourself, which is I say I see small business owners and MDs fall into this trap all the time. Thank you.